Hi, this is Kalia Colston. And I'm Dylan Bird. And this is the podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast. And if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website. It's almost five months since Russian forces invaded Ukraine and while Vladimir Putin might have expected or hoped for a swift takeover of the country, the conflict has very much become a war of attrition with no end date in sight. There have been some extraordinary stories of Ukrainians taking up arms to repel the superior Russian military, aided by weapons supplied by NATO countries, but we don't really know a lot about how the war effort itself is being coordinated. Crikey's associate editor, Amber Schultz, has been reporting on this issue, and particularly the role of foreign fighters, some of whom have spoken out about mismanagement and corruption that appears to be hampering Ukraine's resistance efforts. And Amber now joins me on the line. Great to have you on Triple R. As always, Amber, welcome. Good morning. And so for this article that you've recently penned for Crikey, you've spoken to some ex-military people from the UK and the US who are fighting in Ukraine. Tell us about them. So uh, I first met this man named Michael Perkins when I was in Medica, which is the largest border crossing in Europe uh, on the border of Ukraine in Poland. Um, I first met him when he was attempting to join the Foreign Legions. Uh, this was back in April, and there were just huge numbers of you know young men uh, young veterans uh, and even just some regular citizens, civilians, uh, attempting to go join the war effort and join the foreign legions. Um, so I've been speaking to three men, this Michael Perkins um, and a man named Stephen Elvis Presley, Elvis being his call sign, uh, as well as another man named Todd Chamberlain. Now, uh, Chamberlain and Perkins were uh, supposed to go and then help train Ukrainians, whereas Stephen has been on the front line uh, since March. He was uh, a former U.S military uh, E-4 specialist, so quite high up among the junior ranks, and he's been there since um, March helping helping fight. Um, all three of them have said that there you know, have been concerns about how the military is being run and how resources are being used. Um, Stephen particularly, uh, you know, he has quite a, a, a tragic story, a quite horrific experience over there. He was fighting in um, in the east near the Azov chemical plant in Severodonetsk and said that, you know, because of some of these slow chain of commands, because of some of the, you know, poor communications that they have um, between, between the Ukrainians fighting, between the Ukrainian army and the foreign legions, he said that he almost lost his life and a lot of men did as well because they weren't either uh, able to, to return fire on the Russians. Yeah, and I mean, you can imagine, you know, this this appears to be such a chaotic war and there's, you know, regular civilians taking up arms and, and that sort of thing as well. Did you get a sense from them, though, that, that this kind of mismanagement is something that could be avoided despite the, the pretty chaotic circumstances of what's going on over there? So they say, yes, it, it is interesting. Of course, war is chaos and this is a war of, of attrition, um, not to mention Russia has so many soldiers, so many men they're able to just throw toward the front line. So they're saying it is chaotic and, and weapons aren't being distributed, aren't being, um, you know, going to aren't going to where is needed most. But analysts and experts say, look, there, there is a bit of chaos, but it's almost to be expected. And of course, these men on the ground wouldn't know uh, the, the entire war effort. They wouldn't know every strategy that's, that's being um that officials are coming up with. But, but one of the main concerns that these men raised is that the weaponry either hadn't arrived or wasn't being utilised. So uh, Perkins and Chamberlain, two men, said that they were supposed to go over, they were recruited from the UK, um, and they were going to go over and help train Ukrainian soldiers on armoured forces, uh, armoured vehicles that has been, have been donated by NATO and by allied countries. But they said when they got there after, you know, a lot of planning, a lot of back and forth, when they got there, the armory wasn't there. Mm. And, you know, they, they were baffled. How are we going to train Ukrainians on, you know, when we don't have the equipment? Another concern they raised was when they're on the front line, like, you know, Stephen Elvis Presley is, he says he's pretty well armed. The problem is that when they come back from the front line, uh, their weaponry is taken off them. And of course, it's not just the front line that experienced fighting. You know, Russia is bombing um, multiple locations at once, and if, um, as soon as they have an idea of where a military base is, they'll attack it. And these men are saying that their weaponry is taken off them and put in um, in a warehouse, which is controlled by a quartermaster, who then doesn't give the weaponry out again until they're sent out, uh, you know, to the front line, which for uh, veterans and soldiers from the UK and US is quite different, especially from the US, 
where you have your weapon with you and, and you're responsible for it. So they're saying, you know, that they're unarmed but still being targeted, and they say that it's a massive concern. And so how official is their role? I mean, you mentioned that, that you know, two of these men have been recruited from the UK. Was that sort of a, a, an official uh, role that they occupied, or is it sort of happening through less formal channels? So this is really difficult to get to the bottom of. There is so much secrecy. So I, uh, they say that they were recruited by the Brigadier General um, in the UK, but being able to independently verify that has been a struggle. Mm. Stephen Elvis Presley is, is there um, in an official capacity with the um, International um, Foreign Legions, uh, whereas these two were going to join the Ukrainian army, which is quite different. So it is, it is hard to get a gauge on what's official, what's not, who's taking up arms in an official capacity, and who's just over there doing what they can to fight, which is another, you know, another massive concern around the chaos. We, we don't actually know who's over there, especially for foreigners. Uh, we don't know what skill sets they have, and we don't know, you know whether they've got weapons, who they're fighting against. Um, and what this has caused is actually a bit of blue-on-blue blue action, which is soldiers who are all fighting for Ukraine, but, you know, with four different armies, um, engaging in warfare against each other because they simply don't have the communications or, you know, the right identification to be able to prove from afar who, who they are and what they're there for. Yeah, and uh, I mean, we've heard just this morning that President Vladimir Zelensky has sacked the top prosecutor in the country and also the head of security services over there. And, and this is out of concern that there was some kind of collusion going on with with Russian forces. Is there any suggestion from your reporting about the nature of the war effort and, and I suppose the, the mismanagement that it might be in any way, you know, deliberate or, or, or deliberately kind of sabotaged by people who might be in some way aligned with Russia? There are allegations, and these have been going on for for a very long time. There have been allegations of civilians um, helping or aiding Russian forces. And this is quite difficult because Ukraine has been so closely tied with Russia for a long time. A lot of, you know, a lot of its civilians speak Russian Mm. as a first language. Um, You know, they travel there every Christmas. So it's it's really tough uh, for a lot of them to, to kind of distinguish, you know, who, who is helping and who is hindering the efforts. Um, This is, there have been 651 cases of high treason opened against law enforcement personnel, uh, and some of these are, you know, for simple as providing meals or accommodation to Russian soldiers, which, of course, would be considering hampering the war effort. Um, and there have been 1,400 cases of tre- treason in collaboration with the Russian army against citizens, against civilians. Um, so it, it is quite widespread, but how much is actually sort of you know, official and, and giving weaponry to the Russians and how much is this sort of lower-level uh, allegations of, of giving them food uh, remains unclear. Speaking with Amber Schultz, Associate Editor of Crikey, all about her reporting on the Ukraine war, and um, this latest article explores the, the role of foreign fighters and some of their allegations about mismanagement of the war effort, and, and Amber's also done a whole bunch of reporting from uh, uh, sort of border regions around Ukraine as well in previous months. And from those people that you've spoken to who you know, attempting to, to, I suppose, assist the war effort in Ukraine. What is motivating them? I mean, why are they heading over there to to contribute to um, to the resistance effort? There are a range of reasons. Um, I think, concerningly, a few a few people I've spoken to are this kind of you know gung ho pro gun um, military American seeking a bit of adrenaline. But you know, a lot of them, especially the three that I mentioned there's been this latest article, they're there because they're really worried about Russia invading Europe and mm. they're really, really concerned that, you know, that Russia will continue and, and won't stop at Ukraine. So far, there's not a lot of evidence to support that, but it is this, um, you know, very moralistic stance that they're taking, saying, well, you know, women and children are dying and this is a little bit too close on our doorstep for us to accept it. So they've taken up arms and said that this is the right thing to do uh, and that they have the skill set to do so and they, they need to go join. Yeah, and I mean, in terms of this latest news we've heard this morning, how significant is that, do you think, for where sort of, you know, in the immediate future, the, the resistance and, and the war might, might lead? So we know that there are at least 20,000 um, individuals that have joined the Ukrainian armed forces. Again, how many are foreign fighters uh, uh, versus civilians isn't quite clear because all men of fighting age have been asked to stay behind and help in some way. It is it is very significant. Um, you know, Russia does have a huge, uh, a huge population, and is just sending over so many soldiers 
en masse. And Ukraine, being a, a much smaller country, obviously doesn't have those resources. Um, so without these kind of bodies, I don't think Ukraine would be, uh, you know, would be holding back Russia as successfully as it is. Also, what we're seeing or what we're, what we're hearing from the front line is this war has turned into a lot of... Um, you know, person versus person, soldier versus soldier, trench warfare, which means they're fighting face-to-face, which is something we haven't seen in a war since really uh, World War II. Previously, mm-hmm. it has been a lot more high-tech than it is. Um, so without those, those boots on the ground, Ukraine really wouldn't be as successful as it has been. Yeah, and I mean, one of the people that, that you quote in your article describes that the war is worse than their experience in Afghanistan. It just, you know, sounds incredibly brutal. As I mentioned, you've done some reporting on the refugee crisis over there in past months. I'm not sure sort of how much you're able to keep abreast of that now that you're back in Australia, but do you have much of a sense of of just what is going on in those border regions and the extent to which people can find safety who who are fleeing the crisis over there? This has been a problem from the start in that people from the east are really struggling to leave, which is where Russia, you know, they've annexed Crimea, um, and then now, since their war efforts sort of failed from May, have really uh, focused their attention on the East. So for a lot of people, it is near impossible to, to leave. Um, I did speak to a, a young boy who was you know, just shy of turning 18 who managed to escape, but he had to leave his mother and his younger sister behind simply because there were no spaces on the buses. Um, and this was a, a Russian-controlled region. They managed to pay off someone to, to smuggle them out, essentially. But this is what thousands, tens of thousands of Ukrainians are facing. They can't leave because the Russian soldiers uh, just have such a stronghold on a city that they're they're not letting civilians um, leave. They need them to to stay there and keep up their jobs um, and and keep working so that the soldiers and other civilians can survive. So as as the war, you know, continues, it is a war of attrition. It is just levelling cities, levelling infrastructure, and, and people can't leave. So the humanitarian crisis worsening it's it's getting deeper and deeper as those who fled did flee those who can't remain in incredibly unsafe uh, and unsanitary places with, with no water no no um no health services uh so the longer this war drags on the the worse the fate really of many ukrainians not just for those stuck there but once they return home return home to what yeah and and just lastly our prime minister anthony albanese paid a visit to, to ukraine and, and president vladimir Zelensky recently how significant is it that world leaders do actually head to Ukraine, often you know, under the cover of, of secrecy, and express, I suppose, their solidarity in front of the cameras um, in public? Mm, this is this is huge. I mean, Australia is a massive donor to Ukraine. Um, you know, one of one of the largest outside of, of NATO. So it's it's showing. Um, Really, it's showing Vladimir Putin, it's showing Russia that, that the world is watching, the world is taking a keen, vested interest in what Russia is doing. And it's, I, I think it's showing as well that if Russia did try to expand beyond, you know, into NATO territory or expand beyond Ukraine, that the world is sort of letting them know that this is a, a huge effort on a global scale of every world leader saying, you know, we're watching, we're supporting Ukraine, don't even think about crossing that border and we'll do everything we can to, to keep you away. Yeah, it's such important work you're doing for Crikey, Amber. Thanks so much and really appreciate your time this morning on Triple R. Thank you. Amber Schultz there, Associate Editor of Crikey, talking about her reporting on the situation over in Ukraine. She's been following the story for months now and and did spend some time in border regions back in April, but has a brand new article that we were just talking about, about the role of foreign fighters over there at the moment and some of their allegations of mismanagement and corruption. It's just gone uh, 9.30. You are tuned to The Grapevine with Dylan taking you through until midday. Triple R. Well, as of June 30, the Marcos name is back at the top of Philippines politics. 36 years after his father was removed from office in a popular revolt, Ferdinand Bongbong Marcos Jr. won the election in a landslide in a joint ticket with Sarah Duterte. So what can we make of the return of these powerful names in Philippines politics, particularly some who have been associated with corruption and human rights abuses over the years as well? Nicole Curato is a professor of political sociology over at the University of Canberra, and she's explored this question in a piece for the new edition of Australian Foreign Affairs entitled Strongmen Inc., The Marcos Comeback. And I'm um, very pleased to have Nicole now on the line. Welcome to Triple R. 
Hi, Dylan. Good morning. And apologies for the way I sound. I'm fighting a nasty flu today. Uh, it's not COVID, but it's still nasty. I hope you're doing okay. Yeah, I'm thankfully in good health, but um, it's a very familiar experience for many people at the moment. So really appreciate your time and um, you do sound nice and clear to me. So, so thanks for coming on. You do write in this article that the continuation of these strongmen legacies in the Philippines was expected, but not inevitable. What were the conditions that gave rise to the return of Marcos to the top of Philippines presidency? You know, in 1986, when the Philippines ousted um, the dictator Ferdinand Marcos, it was a peaceful uprising celebrated all around the world. It's the revolution that inspired leaders like Vaclav Havel, for example, for Eastern Europe to launch their own revolutions. The thought was that the Marcoses are banished forever. They're sent to exile in Hawaii, and Philippine democracy will thrive. But obviously, history is more complicated than that. Soon enough, the Marcoses returned to the Philippines. We saw them gracing covers of fashion magazines, the Marcos children being described as the best and the brightest of the Philippines. So in a way, the romanticization of the next generation Marcoses has always been part of the Philippine popular imagination. And I think the Marcoses really started making their comeback when the children started running for national positions um, in 2000. Uh, in 2016, in, 2000, um, 20, uh, in 2016 and 2019, and they won these seats comfortably. And, yeah, they demonstrated electoral power on a national scale. So in that sense, it's not really surprising that the comeback in 2022 was really, really strong because they've already established a track record of winning elections successfully. And it seems like they haven't been political pariahs for a long time. In fact, a lot of politicians consider them as, um, as useful political allies. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. And, and as they did sort of re-emerge, I suppose, from that period of exile, I mean, broadly speaking, were, were people in the Philippines welcome, welcoming of, of the return of the Marcos name to public life? Yeah, so there has always been this constituency in the provinces of Ilocos and Tacloban, the heartland of the Marcoses, where there have always been loyalists. And I remember growing up, I'm revealing my age now, I remember <laughs> growing up at a time like um, in the 80s and the 90s where my parents would say, oh, if you look at this singer, she's a Marcos loyalist, but that's understandable because she's from this region. So there has always been this understanding that there will forever be um, loyal Marcos supporters because they benefited from the regime, because they feel that um, they have this... Um, very deep personal relationship uh, with the family. So I use the term family deliberately here because politics in the Philippines is not defined by political parties. We don't ask which political party is in power, but which family is in power. That's not an exaggeration. So so in, in a way, there's always been this constituency that has defended the Marcuses. But I think what happened in the past few years is that it has shifted. It's no longer a niche political constituency, but it has become the mainstream political constituency of a group of, of voters, 31 million in the last elections, that actually believe that the Marcoses um, deserve to be back in Philippine politics because they, they have something different to offer compared to politicians that have ruled the country since the revolution in 1986. And it's interesting to talk about, about family, I suppose, given that, that Marcos Jr. ran with Sarah Duterte. And, you know, listeners would, I'm sure, be familiar with Rodrigo Duterte, the, the previous president, and the very brutal war on drugs that he waged across the country, and, and I, I suppose that the populist agenda that he ran with. I wonder if you can talk to us about the kind of platform that both Bong Bong Marcos Jr., and Sarah Duterte took to the election? Yeah, so it's not an accident that the title of my piece for AFA is Strongman Inc., right? Because it really demonstrates the merger of two political families whose patriarch's legacy is to mainstream strongman rule in the Philippines. So as we mentioned, uh, Bong Bong Marcos, Bong Bong is his childhood nickname. I know how that sounds to some <laughs> people, um, but that's how he's called as a, as a young boy. Um, so Bong Bong Marcos is the son of Ferdinand Marcos Sr., who has a track record of plundering the nation. This has been proven by courts around the world and human rights violations against activists 
and uh, journalists in, in the 1870s and 80s. And then you have Sarah Duterte, the daughter of uh, former President Rodrigo Duterte, who is being investigated by the International Criminal Court for crimes against humanity because of his brutal drug war. We actually don't know how many people were killed as part of that drug war from 2016. Um, some say it reaches up to 27,000. Others argue there's more. But the point is, the merger of these two political families demonstrate, um, the, in a way, the consent, if not the appreciation, of the Filipino people for that legacy of strongman rule. So if you ask me about the platform, one of the biggest criticisms um, against the tandem during the election was that they never really offered any substantial platform. Their main message was a message of unity, that the country just needs to unite and everything will be resolved. So it's really hard to assess uh, what's on offer. But the message was clear. We need to unite as a nation, but the subtext there is that unity means crushing the opposition. Unity means people on Twitter will be uh, trolled if they start complaining because they will be accused of being ungrateful. So some analysts actually, and I kind of agree with them, some analysts actually say that Sarah Duterte is scarier than her father because at least with her father you see his overt um, belief in, in uh, his overt challenge against the rule of law. But Sarah is a bit more benign, but her, um, her beliefs, her, the way she acts, uh, also has a lot of counter-democratic tendencies. Uh, the best example being the idea that she wants to return mandatory military training for high school students mm. um, or for college students in the Philippines. So it's a militaristic idea. Her anti-communist sentiment is also raising a lot, a lot of alarm bells because when someone is branded as a communist, you can be arrested, you can be surveilled, you can be harassed. So it's like a, a code as well for harassing the opposition. So I think this is what we're worried about um, in the Philippines. Although that said, I think it's also important to um, nuance what the, <clears throat> what the tandem has done in their first um, few months in power. Um, some economists are actually pretty happy with the recent appointments that they've made with the economic team. Um, there is an impression that the Marcos um, administration packed the cabinet with some of the most respected technocrats uh, in the country. Um, investors also think that the Philippines' um, macroeconomic fundamentals will remain the same. So even though there is this concern about um, the lack of accountability, for example, um, there is this impression that um, the Marcos Duterte tandem is also a continuity of previous regimes. Speaking with Professor Nicole Carato from the University of Canberra, she's Professor of Political Sociology over there, speaking about a piece that she's authored for the new edition of Australian Foreign Affairs, and that article is entitled Strongmen Inc. The Marcos Comeback. And you write in the article that it's too simplistic to write off the popular support for people, you know, such as, as Marcos Jr. and Sarah Duterte as coming from a sort of, you know, uneducated, dumb mass of, of people, you, you note how there was very broad support for, um, for, for them leading up to the election. But nonetheless, there is a very robust disinformation ecosystem in the Philippines. What role is that playing currently in the extent to which I suppose the general public is, is aware or cognizant of some of the, the issues around accountability, integrity and, and corruption and so on? Right. I'm glad you asked this. Or actually, I feel I feel very triggered when I get asked questions about disinformation because I spent the bulk of my professional life watching these conspiracy theory videos mm. on YouTube, and I think it's a really powerful way of absolving the Marxists from um, issues of accountability. So, for example, one of the biggest criticisms against the Marcos family is they plundered the nation, right? But when we watch conspiracy theories on YouTube, and there's so many of them, they're so cleverly made, the reason that comes up is that the Marcos patriarch has always been rich because he found gold during the Japanese occupation. And that explains the wealth of the Marcoses. It's not that they plundered the nation. And there are so many variations of these kinds of stories. They might seem funny, they might seem benign, but really what these conspiracy theory videos and other influencers, the narrative that other influencers um, convey in TikTok or um, in, on, on Instagram even, 
is that um, the Marcoses are not at fault, that there has been a systematic demolition job against the family. And now is the time for the Filipino people to know the truth, that they've been um, deluded or they've been lied to for, for the longest time. And I think that has really implications for accountability, because for any disgraced politician, not just in the Philippines, but in Southeast Asia more broadly, in the piece I talk about some of the disgraced politicians in Southeast Asia trying to mount a comeback, the lesson that they can learn from the Marcos comeback is that, oh, so we can just really invest in disinformation and sell a narrative to the people. And when that narrative connects to the people, then we can actually mount our, our comeback, right? So I think that is quite dangerous because the Philippines provides this um, exemplary case of how it can be done. Yeah, that, that, that is concerning. And I mean, I need to ask you about Maria Ressa, who's been a champion of freedom of speech and an independent journalist. She's, of course, won a Nobel Prize for her work, founder of Rappler News Organization, and has been repeatedly targeted previously by the Duterte regime. And recently she lost an appeal against a conviction for cyber libel. And this also came after the previous administration ordered that Rappler, her news organization, be shut down. What does the future hold for Maria Ressa and, and her journalism? So I think in this context, Maria Ressa is a representation of the battle of so many other journalists in the Philippines who are not on the limelight. So here I'm talking about community journalists, um, journalists who are working independently, who do not have the backing of a prestigious organization like Rappler. To a certain extent, Maria Ressa is, is fortunate to have lawyers like Amal Clooney defending her uh, in the global mm. stage, right? But really the message here is that um, the Philippines has always been a vulnerable place for journalists. I think you'll be shocked to find out that the Philippines is one of the deadliest places for journalists even before Duterte became president. And that is because journalists have been constantly harassed, gone down, um, when local politicians find the stories they publish as unsavory. So I think while it's important to recognize that what's happening with Rappler and Maria Ressa is really troubling, we also have to situate this in the longer history of impunity in the Philippines of how um, journalists who hold politicians, not just on the national level, but on the local level accountable, they've always been um, vulnerable to these attacks. Yeah, and, and just lastly, I mean, the current president, Bongbong uh, Marcos Jr., has a connection with Australia. His son attends university over here, and we've heard since the election of the, the Labor government that there appears to be more engagement with the region, with, with Asia, and, and so on. Do you feel that there is any sort of opportunities for, for potential diplomatic ties or strengthening of relationships, um, given you know, the, the recent election in, in both countries of, of different leaders? Yeah, so I'm not a foreign policy expert, although my sense here is that it's always important to make a distinction between the Filipino government and the Filipino people. Mm. And I think um, Australia has been such a good friend to the Philippines when it comes to the peace process in southern Philippines, for example, when it comes to empowering women in post-conflict zones. I think these are projects that should remain regardless of who is in power, although I think the appeal also is if, if there is aid or if there is kind of, um, yeah, if there is aid that comes to the Philippines, hopefully the accounting of that aid will be in order because we still, or I still have memories of the Marcos regime being tried for having loans and aids from uh, international organizations being embezzled for their own benefit. Yeah. So I just hope that this relationship will continue. And as I always say, societies are stronger than strong men. The link between Australia and the Philippines, it's is much stronger um, than the Marcos and Labour government alliance, not alliance, but friendship. Yeah. Well, that's a, that's a great point to end on. It's been so great having you on the show, Nicole. It's um, learned so much this morning. Really appreciate your time. My pleasure. Thank you. Nicole Curato there, who is uh, the Professor of Political Sociology over at the University of Canberra, talking in particular about a piece that she's written for the brand new edition of Australian Foreign Affairs. It's all about um, the return of the Marcos name to the top of Philippine politics. And the article is entitled Strong Men Inc. It has just gone two minutes past 10. You're on the grapevine with Dylan taking you through until midday. Triple R on FM, digital, online, on demand, podcasts and via the app.
When corporations get behind social and political causes, they can be equally celebrated for progressing positive change and criticised for putting political correctness before their core business. A case in point is Nike's use of NFL player Cohen Kaepernick's Black Lives Matter activism as part of its Emmy award-winning ad campaign. But the ad was simultaneously hounded by the US right-wing media for its supposedly woke agenda. My next guest drills deeper into these dynamics and argues that companies' efforts to appear socially progressive are not only illusionary, but actively damaging. Carl Rhodes is Professor of Organisation Studies at University of Technology, Sydney, and his recent book is entitled Woke Capitalism, How Corporate Morality is Sabotaging Democracy. Carl, great to have you on the show. Welcome. Great to be here, Darren. Thanks for having me. And so um, before we get into the substance of the book, I think we need to pause to talk about the word woke, which of course um, figures prominently in that track um, I just played by Erica Bardu. Can you give us a a potted history of this word, where it emerged from and and its usage today? Yeah, sure. The the word woke um, uh, is is part of our African-American vernacular that was already around in the 1960s, generally meaning... uh, political awareness, so being awake to, to one's environment. I mean, a version of this was even used by, by Martin Luther King, advising people to be, a, to be awake to the civil rights movement and not to sleep through the revolution. So it's a, 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 a means of understanding a political awareness um, in African-American culture, being aware of racism and discrimination, aware of one's socio-political context. It wasn't much more widely used than that uh, for some time until the Black Lives Matter movement uh, took force in 2013 and, and you know, a, a movement very much associated with social media. And the hashtag Stay Woke became associated with, with the Black Lives Matter movement. So this is really how it, it became more well-known through, through social media. Um, and after a little while, it kind of ex- its meaning extended beyond just Black Lives Matter. It became appropriated by mainstream culture in the U.S. and globally. And really, by the mid-2010s, uh, woke was used more, as it's used now, to, to criticize people, especially uh, white people, uh, who bragged about self-righteous positions on, on various political issues. And so it kind of was a big turnaround from work being a very positive uh, understanding of political awareness to becoming used as a derogatory term, um, uh, usually by, by somewhat shouty right-wing types who want to criticize a rising tide of uh, political corporate activism. So it became associated after then with corporations, as we see it now, where you hear of woke corporations and woke capitalism. So there is this kind of history of uh, cultural appropriation associated with the use woke. Yeah, and I mean, you've used the, the word in the title for your book, woke capitalism. And I mean, it's not necessarily a new thing for corporations and, and companies that are trying to make money to in some way tap into the cultural zeitgeist. But is there anything unique in the way that, that corporations are especially trying to, to appear to be behind political and social causes uh, at the current time? I think it, it is new to, to some extent because it's become a lot more widespread, um, and it's something that the term woke capitalism was uh, was uh, only coined uh, in the late 2010s. Um, so it, it keyed into this this cultural moment um, uh, where um, uh, where there was a lot more political awareness growing in society. It was also at the time of the Trump presidency in the U.S. I mean, this whole thing started in the U.S. And as corporations uh, wanted to uh, take advantage of the tax cuts that Trump was offering, they perhaps wanted to distance themselves from his uh, unsavory political position. So this kind of wokeness became more popular. So it's located in the particular moment um, of history. Um, And the other thing that's different is that Today, uh, corporate corporations that are accused of being woke, it's because they are attaching themselves to what traditionally would have been seen as progressive or left-wing social or environmental causes, where historically you would normally associate uh, corporations with a more conservative uh, uh, politics. So uh, while it's clearly a continuation of things that happened in the past, 
there is some unique characteristics to, to what we're witnessing at the moment. Yeah, and it, it's instructive, as you lay out in the book, to look at the kinds of causes that corporations tend to get behind. We might think of Black Lives Matter, um, Me Too, even in sort of climate change to an extent as well. To what extent, I suppose, is it significant that there are these kinds of causes that corporations might be willing to spruik, but perhaps not touch things like, you know, wage inequality or, or workers' rights and industrial relations and those sorts of things? Yeah, I mean, generally, if we look at the kind of causes that corporations um, uh, uh, pursue or, or support, they tend to be, again, they tend to be progressive and they tend to be, um, but they tend to be on the socially progressive side. So, you know, uh, marriage rights, LBGTQI um, uh, rights, as well as um, environmentalism, um, uh, you know, Black Lives Matter, the Me Too movement. So supporting these, these social causes, um, uh, but generally not supporting the more traditional economic uh, issues that you would associate with progressive or left politics. As you mentioned, you know, there's no woke corporations contesting, you know, the, the runaway train of excessive CEO pay. Um, mm. No one's supporting increasing the minimum wage, aggressive corporate tax minimization. No one supporting, um, uh, you know, economic equality through, through progressive taxation and wealth di- distribution. So all of these things, which are perhaps not direct, which could harm um, uh, financial interests of corporations, tend not to get pursued. So I think this is one of the problems of woke capitalism. Even if you agree with the kind of causes that many corporations are pursuing uh, and supporting, as I in fact do do myself, it, it, you've got to realise too that it does tend to to uh, dictate the agenda, the, the public agenda, or at least attempt to dictate the public agenda, which is really not how democracy should work. The fact, you know, uh, corporations are comprised of private citizens, and and you know, each one of us as citizens should have an equal voice in a, in a democracy. But that's not the case when corporations start speaking. They're in a position of power to have a much louder voice than everybody else. Yeah, and that's such a, an important point, isn't it? Because we might find it, it okay or even, um, you know, be willing to get behind certain corporations or even very wealthy individuals when they seem to be doing things about a, a cause that we support. You know, somebody like Mike Cannon-Brooks and his his climate change advocacy and what he's, you know, attempting to do through uh, acquiring sort of AGL and, and even people such as Simon Holmes Accord and in providing money to climate change-focused candidates. So we have people who might be, you know, actively doing things that, that might lead to an outcome that we would like. But what is your concern about, I, I suppose, what that means for the state of democracy and, and the role of these mega-rich corporations or even individuals um, in democracy today? Yeah, I mean, I think if we, if we leave uh, these decisions to people, uh, to wealthy individuals and corporations, you mentioned several, several people there, I mean, it might be okay if we happen to agree with them. I agree with uh, Ken and Brooks that, that Australia's approach to, to climate is, is, is far too weak and needs to be, needs to be hastened, um, uh, if you like. So I, I agree with that. But I'm still concerned that as a private individual, he has so much say. But I think part of the problem, and in the case of Cannon Brooks' attempted takeover of AGL, I think this is quite revealing here, because in many cases, why woke uh, capitalism has been enabled, to some extent, it's not because, you know, there's some individuals, Cannon Brooks or whoever, are kind of, you know, intending to take over government. That's not, not the case. So it's not so much a criticism of those people, but really it's a failure of democracy to have dealt with that, that we have to rely on the, on the voluntary actions of wealthy individuals to deal with some of the major problems uh, that we face both as a nation and indeed, indeed globally. So this is the issue, is, is that democracy has failed and it's private interest. And, the day, and it's fine if we happen to agree, but what happens when we don't agree and then we have no political recourse uh, to address that? That's when we return to a kind of feudalism that democracy replaced. Speaking with Carl Rhodes, who's Professor of Organisation Studies at University of Technology, Sydney, speaking this morning all about his recent book, Woke Capitalism, How Corporate Morality is Sabotaging 
democracy. And, and you outline in your book, Carl, how there's essentially something fundamental we're missing out in the way that what capitalism tends to be debated in the public realm. So you mentioned shouty right-wing figures, particularly in the US, who talk a lot about um, you know the sort of woke agenda of corporations and, and suggesting, I suppose, in some way that they're moving away from their core business, which should be about making money. But of course, that doesn't really capture the nature of criticisms that you have about this phenomenon. I, I really uh, disagree with uh, those kind of criticisms, and it is mainly in the U.S. We do have a few of them here as well, uh, however. <laughs> um, but no, I mean, <laughs> I won't name names. Um, um, uh, but no, the problem isn't that businesses should... I mean, in a sense, it is that businesses should carry on doing what they're meant to do, but, but that the role of the state and the role of democracy in addressing particular social issues needs to be strengthened. Um, and this is the real, the real point. My criticism is not so much of the wokeness, which is what you get from, from those critics you just mentioned, but more a, criti- a criticism of how we understand capitalism. And when we live in a society as ours, which is, operates in the nexus between liberal democracy as a political system and um, market capitalism as an economic system, we have to understand the relationship between those two things. And the problem, as I see it with woke capitalism, is that the economic sphere has become, is becoming increasingly politically dominant. And so it's, it's a need to reassert um, uh, popular sovereignty and reassert um, a democratic tradition so that we're not just... Uh, you know, at the whim and mercy of wealthy people um, uh, and, and the crumbs that might fall from their tables. Yeah, and your central argument in the book is that woke capitalism is not sort of just virtue signalling or something we can laugh off as being ineffective, but that it is actually very harmful to democracy. I wonder if you can explain some of those concerns and, and what implications there might be if we continue on this path without actively critiquing and, and I suppose in some way trying to reform things so that there is more uh, capacity for, for democracies to promote and, and produce the kind of change that we, we need. Yeah, so I mean the two predominant positions here, and you've kind of outlined them, but just to repeat slightly, is you have the liberal left position which agrees that corporations should genuinely support broad interests of society and not just focus on shareholders. And you get people encouraging corporations to take these positions. You then get an economically right-wing perspective that believes corporations should just be purely commercial entities and not interfere. Now, both of these positions uh, share something in common, and that is a belief that woke capitalism actually signifies a genuine underlying change to the purpose of capitalist corporations. It's just that one group believes that that's a good thing, and the other group believes that it's not a good thing. But in my view, going woke is actually about ensuring that the existing market capitalist system and the economic inequalities that it produces can actually continue on the trajectory that it's been going on for the past 40 years. It's actually about making sure that there is no fundamental change to the underlying uh, economic structures at all. And so it can, there's actually an anti-progressive effect of both, you know, of this kind of woke capitalism, or some people will call it stakeholder, um, uh, stakeholder capitalism. So it's not just about woke corporations being hypocrites, you know, riding on popular causes so that people buy, buy their products. It's actually about realizing that when corporations do align themselves with progressive positions, they're, again, they're generally focused on social change, and it means no underlying uh, change to, uh, economically. And really, you know, the issue we have here is economic equality, which is getting worse. And even now, with inflationary pressures, the dangers are, are even greater as corporate profits seem to be increasing with inflation, but regular people's wages are pretty stagnant. Absolutely. And, and you write in the book towards the very end that now is the time to be woke to woke capitalism. And that's, I suppose, regaining the true idea of what it means to be woke. It's about being aware of, of socioeconomic and structural inequalities and actually doing something about it. So, so what does, it, does that change or that kind of positive advocacy look like in practice, Carl? Yeah, I mean, that, I mean, uh, that is, a, is uh, actually the key question. I mean, you know, the purpose of my book is, is really to, to help raise awareness 
and to put forward a different view and, and a different understanding so that people who, who listen to your show or, or read the book can come to better uh, conclusions for themselves. What it actually means uh, to address this is a much more complicated thing, but I think it, it's really about reversing the kind of trends of uh, what some people call neoliberalism over the last 40 years that sees market-based uh, corporate solutions as the answer to anything, everything. It means reasserting the importance of government, reasserting the importance of, uh, of democracy and its role in, uh, in, in civil society, um, and uh, taking that on much more seriously. I mean, I don't have a blueprint for an answer, um, uh, but it really requires a new political imagination that, that, that brings democracy back to the fore, rather than just expecting the, the private sector to solve all the problems. Absolutely. Well, it's a, it's a fascinating and enlightening book and really appreciate you spending some time with us on Triple R this morning. Look, really, really great to talk to you, Dylan. Thanks. Thanks, Carl. Professor Carl Rhodes there, uh, he is with the University of Technology Sydney Business School. He's um, a professor of organisation studies over there and his brand new book is called Woke Capitalism, How Corporate Morality is Sabotaging Democracy. You can get that at your local bookstore, I'm sure, or find it online. The Snowy Mountains is home to a beautiful and fragile ecosystem that spawns some of Australia's most important water sources. It's also of huge cultural significance to particular Indigenous communities and serves as the backdrop to the enduring colonial narrative of the man from Snowy River. But a confluence of climate change events, invasive species, notably wild horses and industrial practices are continuing to take a huge toll on the region. This is explored in a new documentary called Where the Water Starts, which is screening as part of the Melbourne Documentary Film Festival and this morning I'm thrilled to be joined by one of the main people featured in the film, Richard Swain, who's a Wiradjuri man and Indigenous ambassador with the Invasive Species Council and uh, also a river guide in the snowy. Richard, welcome to Triple R, great to have you uh, on air. Thank you, Dylan. Uh, Lovely to be here. And so um, first up, tell us about your particular connection to the Snowy Mountains and the region that's depicted in this film. Uh, I'm born in the mountains. My my father was the head field tech for the soil conservation, and the soil conservation did many years up in the mountains, uh, rehabilitating the damage done by the stock grazing era. So basically the main range you see today it was um, extremely eroded and very degraded you know, for 50 years back. Yeah, and so a long history, I suppose, noticing and, and working on the land that you know has, has been damaged by a range of different factors, as I mentioned in the intro. What specifically have been the main changes, I suppose, in the environment and the landscape that you've noticed over your lifetime in that part of the world? Oh, well, I was born during the, the, snowy, the snowy scheme era, so um, you know, I basically grew up watching the death of rivers. Uh, they... they Dammed 12 major rivers and 76 creeks and really didn't allow for any fishways or, or anything. It's just purely economy and engineering. And, and so it's hard to grow up in a community watching everyone idolise, no one ever asking the question about should, should we have killed the river or, you know, was that the right thing to do? Did we need to take all of it? Absolutely, and and what strikes me about this film, which is a you know a beautiful film and such an important film in in a lot of ways, is that often when we talk about the Snowy Mountains and the Australian Alpine region, it's kind of couched in the Man from Snowy River type narrative, that the colonial kind of familiar narrative to white Australia, and and part of that story, I suppose, is important for understanding the huge resistance to culling feral horses and the like. But what I really like about this film is that it really foregrounds uh, the particular sort of Indigenous stories and and connections to land over that time and the role that that part of the world plays in water sources and broader kind of ecosystem sustainability as well. I wonder about, I mean, you're sort of featured in this film, you're not one of the filmmakers, but how important is it to be connecting us with that part of the story that often isn't uh, sort of the focus of the way that we talk about that that region? Oh, well, very. It's, there's no future in, in the way that we currently see the mountains. There's, there's no future in the way we currently see the Australian landscape and, and our fellow species that evolved here. So... But in 2018, they, they proposed 
protecting the feral horse because we were we'd finally worked really hard to we'll go we're going to tackle the issue and um there's always been resistance to that because of a, a false narrative about the mountains. And, yeah, in 2018, they moved, put forward a law that protected the feral horses even above our native species. And I'd had enough. I, I thought, oh, I can't. I can't stay quiet. I have to... Because, of, you know, my I just watch the damage every day when I'm working on, along the river and I just thought, oh, this can't continue. And so hopefully the field... Uh, what I try to do is bring the voice of country, yeah. let people see it from country's point of view, from our fellow species' point of view. Yeah, absolutely. And in your experience, I mean, you recount in the film the real challenges and, and, you know, pretty nasty racism you've experienced in speaking up about these issues, people even threatening violence as well. How has it sort of been for you trying to, to raise awareness and, and advocate for the protection of this area, given that there is or has been such significant resistance to reducing feral horse numbers? Uh yeah, the, I mean, the colonial crowd, unfortunately, in this country, they have a, a false view of their own history and they have a false connection to country. And uh, yeah, I don't know why why they don't want to fall in love with our species in this land, but, but they do revert to like what I'd call a cornered cat syndrome. So they get really angry and really aggressive really quickly. I... I guess I knew it was there, but I didn't expect it to be as bad as it was. Um, but but that only it only drives you harder, I think, to to care for country and to to get Australians to see it from the landscape's point of view, not just the the human point of view. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, there there is sort of optimism in, in this film as well. At one point in it, you. Talk about the regeneration of areas that have been protected through sort of national park designation and the like. I wonder if you can describe just what the sort of regenerative process looks like when areas are properly protected and you see the return of, of native species and so on. Well, the, well, the main range, that was done by people like my father and some really good regenerative science ecologists and and, and they, they pioneered things like... Um, spray out uh, the bitumus-coated uh, hay with the grass seeds in them. They used certain amounts of phosphorus and non-native grasses, and the non-native grasses would strike first, and, and they'd consume the phosphorus, and then when they died off, that allowed for the native to come through. They remediated lots of bogs and lots of erosion. It was really, really good, good stuff. But like the lower snowy, where I do most of my work along the river there, it's been National Park for years now. Mm. And 30 years ago, the largest consumer of that environment, this is going by the scat analysis, the dung analysis, was uh, rabbits. And then it was native animals, macropods. And then it was... Um, and then it was nearly... Then there was no deer. 30 years later, all, all whilst being a national park, the largest consumer of the environment down there is now horses followed by deer, followed by rabbits, and our native animals are nearly non-existent. So we are not protecting these areas, and it's due to this uh, feral animal problem that we have. And how do you observe the current state of things? Because the film does touch on the, the sort of John Barillaro bill in New South Wales, and, you know, as we've touched on, it can be a highly contested issue, this. Do you have sort of hope or optimism that the, the right story is being told and, and there might be moves to better protect some of these areas into the future? Yeah, so I, I don't think John Barillaro expected people like myself and, and, and all the others that really, really got... Um, upset about this mm. and, and it was exposed as cowardice politics and um, the really annoying bit is I've done a lot of lobbying in Parliament and there's not, there's not a politician in there that really agrees with this And um, but they play follow the leader in this two-party system and um, unfortunately they, they're making these kind of decisions not based on what's great for our, our Australian landscape and so the sooner that changes, the better. And the sooner we get them scared to make those decisions, the better. 
Absolutely. Speaking with Richard Swain, who's Indigenous Ambassador with the Invasive Species Council, and he's one of the people featured in a new documentary called Where the Water Starts, which is screening as part of the Melbourne Documentary Film Festival, and it explores a whole range of, I suppose, ecological issues around the, the snowy mountains and, and the role that feral horses play in climate change and, and other challenges as well. And I want to ask you about your river cruises, Richard, because this seems like such a novel way of allowing people to properly experience the snowy and see up close, I suppose, both the beauty of it, but also some of the ways that, that the land is really being degraded through some of these forces that we've, we've spoken about. Tell us more about those river cruises, kind of how often do you do them and, and what kinds of people typically accompany you? Uh, I've been doing it for many years, but we used to run sort of what we used to call bubble, bubbles and giggles trips where you'd put people in a raft and take them down a grade four river like the Murray Gap yell at them to hang on and tell <laughs> dirty jokes. Um, but then when they decided, and we fought for many years to get environmental flows down the down the Snowy River, when they finally decided they would do that, I thought, oh, I'd love to run expeditions down along the Snowy. And you'd think a normal tour, I could show them the beauty of the place which and and really not have to touch on the problems of the place we can't do that, and I don't think any tour guide nationally should be doing that either. I think we, we really do need to tell the truth. I think it's our job to educate as well as to show give people a good time. And so the area I take them is extremely remote. It's it's a time capsule. There's um, and, and the landscape tells the story as, as good as any book does. It's written in the landscape what happened there, the, the, how the erosion happened, the old, the pre-colonial forest is, is still in there amongst the now post-colonial forest and, and the artefacts are still on the ground and and, and the, unfortunately the Snowy River gets treated a bit like a tap because the Snowy Hydro, you know, they, their main focus isn't a living river, it's you know, fighting against every, every leader that they, they lose for money. Mm. But, um, oh, I, I love it. It's... Um, it, not many places like that in, in Australia that, that are really uh, written like that, where the, the landscape is still telling you such a loud and clear story. Yeah, and, and how can people find out more about those river tours and, and come along? Oh, they can yeah, just Google uh, Alpine River Adventures. Yeah. Um, I'm, not, I'm not the keenest businessman in the world. We, we sort of... Um, <laughs> I'm I'm, slow, I'm slowing down, so I'm a bit harder to to get now. People have to really organise themselves into their own group and and try and haggle out a date with me. Yeah, I, I I'm not. I just don't see the point in taking too many people in there either. Mm. Um, I don't want to turn that place into a sideshow at, at all. Yeah, I mean, it seems like it would be an absolutely unforgettable experience to go on, being taken down the river with you. But it's uh, in terms of sort of where things sit currently, we've had a change at the federal level of government. And, you know, I mean, water policy, generally speaking, has been a really challenging area and has been mismanaged for a long, long time. From where you sit in the kind of advocacy you do, particularly for that region and making sure that we look after that, that place into the future and don't allow sort of unnecessary unnecessary industrialisation and, and rampant feral species to continue to degrade it into the future. Is there sort of any hope there might be a significant shift given that we have had a change of government at the federal level at all, Richard? Well, the, most of the... I see our problems as cultural. Yeah. Uh, I, I, a modern Australia doesn't have a connected, caring culture. And um, so... There was a slight change in culture with that last election. Um, unfortunately, in Victoria, your Liberal opposition in, at a state level, they, they want to protect feral horses as well because mm. they see it as a cheap boat grab for upper house seats. So uh, until we start to change our culture, then we, we you know, and, and, and then when we need to turn into a regenerative future, we need to regenerate the, the, our mistakes and, um, and we need to look forward to a better future. So for me, it's cultural and the types of political people we have as politicians, they're a reflection of where our culture's at at the moment. So the John Barillaro's of the world came about because of us. Yeah. So am I hopeful? 
I certainly believe we have the brains and the ability to fix our problem. I just hope we develop a culture that allows us to do it. Absolutely. And I mean, hopefully this film helps in some small way to do that because it is absolutely beautiful, that part of the world that it depicts. And it very much sort of loud and clear makes the the issue um, kind of a central focus and the importance of protecting that region, which is just, you know, comes across as so incredibly special and anyone would agree who visits that part of the world as well. It's been um, a real pleasure speaking with you this morning, Richard. Really appreciate your time and best of luck with everything going forward, both with the the river tours um, and with your continued advocacy. Well, thanks for having me, Dylan. I appreciate it. Absolute pleasure. Richard Swain there, who's Indigenous Ambassador with the Invasive Species Council, and he's featured in a new documentary called Where the Water Starts, which is screening as part of the Melbourne Documentary Film Festival. You can catch it at Cinema Nova this coming Saturday, July 23rd. Tickets are available via the Cinema Nova website. I think that might be the only... Um, official festival screening I could be wrong, I think there's a screening at Lido Cinemas as well and in some places in ACT and New South Wales so just search where the water starts online to find all information about that, Um, well worth your time uh, checking out that documentary it's just gone 3 minutes past 11, you are on the grapevine with Dylan taking you through until midday Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoyed the show, and if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website.